From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Every day, I round the corner of the front lobby at MSP Communications to go back to Twin Cities Business, to our little corner of the office, and I think today might be the day, the day that I beat Bert Cohen to the office. But it never happens. The founder of MSP Communications, founding publisher of Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine and Twin Cities Business is there in his suspenders and tie at his desk every single day. He's a legend in the world of publishing. He played a key role in modernizing the mission of the University of Minnesota School of Journalism. He has served on countless boards, including Medica, Minneapolis Institute of Arts, and the University of St. Thomas. He's a mentor to virtually every leader at MSP Communications, myself included, and it is clearly my biggest coup to date that I got him to come on this podcast. Thank you, sir, for being here. Well, it's a pretty sad commentary if this is one of your great achievements. (laughs) Well, you got to start somewhere, right? I when when the first issue of um, of Twin Cities Business uh, was published, the first one that I edited last, uh, what would that have been? Last June, I started in April. You and I had lunch at your favorite spot, yes, at, at the Minneapolis Club. Well, I had lunch. You had a plate of cottage cheese, and I handed you the issue. It had Kim Bartman on the cover, and I said, "Look, I didn't screw it up." And do you remember what you said to me? I, I, I have. Yes, I remember. How come you get a really good-looking sandwich, and all I get is a plate of cottage cheese? <laughs> well, there's that. But when I said to you, I didn't screw it up, you said to me, you will. And and I carry well, that advice with me. Oh, I, I apologize. No, for it that. was great. It was it was great. I mean, seriously. You you have a very yeah. um you have a really healthy, funny way of making it all seem like look, this is not, you know, this yeah, is well, not the end true. of the world. You know, we all screw up and do things wrong and regret moves that we make uh, eventually. But we have to keep trying because otherwise everything would be stagnant. Right. And that's the beauty of the magazine business. There's always another month. There's always another issue. That's right. Get to try every month. So your uh, career in journalism goes back a couple of years. You went to journalism school, right? I claim to have gone to journalism school. Did you know you, I mean, what, what was it that you liked about journalism? What did you set out to do when you went to college? Well, there's multiple answers to that. I grew up in a family of journalism. My father published medical journals. And uh, I seem to have a natural inclination or modest borderline talent 
for that kind of thing. So because of his, of the environment, because of his work, um, I leaned in that direction. But I also found that it was probably the easiest route to survival. <laughs> it did not involve any phys physical exercise, didn't involve any math mm -hmm. or really hard things mm -hmm. that I wasn't good at. And so by default, I ended up in journalism. I think that's why a lot of us go into journalism. Yeah, no math. Absolutely. Yeah. It's sort of a haven for talentless or borderline <laughs> talentless people. Great. Who can't scratch out a living somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Well, we're in good company. Yeah. So you, you get a degree. You, I did, yes. And what, what was your first move? Uh, my first move... Uh, after graduation was to go in the army. Ah. No, my first move was to get married, actually, mm -hmm. which I did. And uh, about a week later, went in the army. I had been in ROTC. I was a terrible soldier, <laughs> but I was one for the next two years. And following that, um, my wife and I, her name is Rusty, moved to New York because we were intrigued with New York. I still am, actually. Mm -hmm. You grew and, up in, in Minnesota. I grew I up say. in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. right. Uh, but we moved to New York, and I found a job with a small publishing, I mean, really small publishing company, which published trade magazines for the liquor industry for wholesalers and for retailers in the liquor industry. It was really interesting. Mm -hmm. They taught me a lot. I learned a lot. Were you on the publishing side, the sales side, or, or no, the editorial? On the business side. Okay. But I did fill in for the editor, a wonderful man by the name of Frank Herring, who knew everything there ever was to know about the liquor business. Hmm. And I will, on occasion, would edit an article or even write a small piece, but primarily on the business or administrative side. They didn't have a, a division. There was no uh, there church and state. There weren't enough people to divide. Uh -huh. Yeah. I do remember uh, once when... Uh, Frank was asked to be a judge at a contest to be held at the Plaza Hotel in New York. And it was sponsored by the Wines of California industry. And the objective of the contest was to get a bunch of wine aficionados and experts to do a blind tastings to see if they could tell the difference between French wines and California wines. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about wines, but Frank was very, very knowledgeable. The day of the event, he got sick, and they sent me to be a judge in this contest, upon which, the outcome of which, the future of the California wine industry 
hinged. <laughs> and the other judges and I sat at a table and were given four glasses of white wine. They were labeled A, B, C, D. And then they took those away, gave us some crackers, and then brought four different wines, and then four other wines, and four other wines. And we were instructed to, and I was instructed before I went there, don't drink the whole glass, just take a sip. Right. Because otherwise you'll be on the floor. <laughs> so I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. All the wines tasted the same to me. Mm -hmm. But I had to score them. And it turned out, miracle of miracles, I did very well, totally accidentally. And that was the last time I was ever asked to judge a wine contest. I'm happy to say Wines of California survived that Thank goodness. Ex uh, experiment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will always treasure the memory of that, although actually I had forgotten it for the last 40 years until you reminded me. <laughs> well, it's a good story. Um, how long did you stay in New York? Six years. And and then what brought you back to Minneapolis? Poverty. <laughs> okay. Uh, we always intended to come back. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up here. Rusty grew up in Iowa but went to school here at the U of M. And uh, our family business, publishing business was here, which always was there as something attractive to me and to my dad and his partners. Had your dad wanted you to go out and get some other experience, become a wine He was very much in favor of that, yeah. although that was actually our decision to do it. Okay. He also had two partners, so they all supported me. They were wonderful. So when you came back, did you start working for yes. your dad? Yes. And what was his company? What was that it was called? called Modern Medicine Publications, and they published a handful of medical and dental journals. Okay. Not for lay audiences, but for uh, for the industry physicians. Okay. And so dentists. what did what did you what did you do? I was on the business side. I did marketing, uh, sales. Uh, Things were a little administrative different. operations. Sure, it must have been a very different game then. You didn't have, I mean, there were a lot more publications. You didn't have all of the different channels that you have today. What what was it like to be in the magazine business? But what what was this like the sixties? It was in the sixties uh, and and beyond. Yeah, um, it was fantastic fun. It was so exciting. Magazines were very, very dominant as a form of communications. Uh, I had an opportunity because of that, this role or involvement to meet with all kinds of people in the f advertising world and in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, people in the pharmaceutical industry are to a great extent, persona non grata today, 
But back then, they were considered, and still by many are considered, very smart operators and very talented and running operations that were doing good and making lots of money. Hmm. What was the biggest lesson you learned about the publishing world from your father? Uh, I don't know that I can answer the, a single lesson, Allison. The, uh, if, I, if, I ha- if I had to list things I learned, they would be respect everyone's opinions. Don't always think you're right about everything, even though you know in your heart you are right and everyone else is off base. Unfortunately, that turns out not to be true in practice. So don't think you're smarter than everybody else and listen to what they have to suggest or say about an operation or an opportunity. Another thing would be to respect people that you deal with and that holds true with respecting the heads of major companies that I would come in contact with, as well as the l- least quote unquote important persons at that company that I might come in contact with, like somebody taking coats at the door or a receptionist. And I don't mean to in any way demean that now, mm-hmm. but people not in major right everybody's human they're all we're all and people they're, and they're all good people and they're all working hard yeah. and they're all contributing to the success of the business right so that's a really important lesson so at a certain point you took over your father's business yeah uh, at a after a few years uh, my dad and his partner decided to sell the business because they were all getting to retirement or were at retirement age. Something you don't know a lot about. I was, no, but I'm looking forward to retirement sometime in the future. Really? I am. Okay. Uh, I've been waiting for that patiently uh, so far to to no avail. But they decided uh, I was the only next generation person interested. The other partners had children, but none of them were interested in the business. And so they decided uh, to sell it, which they did. And that led to incredible experiences, both good and bad, for me. Because at that point, they all retired. And I was left there to run the business, essentially, under a new owner who knew nothing about it. Mm. And so that was a very exciting and fulfilling and frustrating period of years that Got it. came next. And d- did you learn that you didn't like working for other people? I learned two things. I learned I really didn't like working for the people who bought it. Not because they weren't smart or successful, but I 
did not like their values mm. in the way they dealt with people and treated people and respected or did not respect people, and that really troubled me. Hmm. Uh, I also didn't like their emphasis on the bottom line to the exclusion of everything else. I was, I cared about the bottom line also. You have to, you want to, but not to the total exclusion of all other considerations. Right, of the, you want it to be a good product. So the good news is that that buyer um, eventually decided to sell the business. And I ended up as part of a transaction working for the New York Times, which then bought our company. And that was an incredibly wonderful, exhilarating experience. I treasure it. I loved it then, even though it was not just a piece of cake to deal with. We had, obviously, as any business does, ongoing difficulties, frustrations, problems. But we also had wonderful successes. 1978 was when you started MSP Communications. Right. How, why, what was, the, what was the plan? The why was that modern medicine was moved to New York ah. by the time sold it for a combination of reasons, which having already used up all my time here, <laughs> I won't go into. But they they loved it, but they decided to sell it. So you needed a new job. So they sold it to a really bad company. Oh. And the new really bad company moved it to New York. Mm -hmm. They offered me a, a chance to move to New York. I did not want to do that for a variety of reasons. And so I left, and they were very good to me personally in terms of letting me continue to use an office and stuff for a while. But uh, I began to look around for something to do, and I was 47 years old and essentially unemployed, and I had three kids in schools and was hungry all the time for food. <laughs> And uh, a, f a very dear friend who had for many years run our medical international division, we had, we had uh, medical publishing operations in seven countries, and we published in, uh, in 14 countries, actually, and we published in seven languages. And the person who was in charge of all that said to me, you know, every time I, he lived in Vancouver, every time I bring some of these foreign publishers to Minneapolis, you, all, you and Rusty always give them a tour of the city and so forth. You talk with such enthusiasm. You love your city. And I've noticed a couple cities that I'm acquainted with have started city magazines. This was a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, you should think about doing that in Minneapolis. 
You know the publishing business. You love your city. Think about it. I did. And I looked around, and I was not aware there was a city magazine here. It was called MPLS. It was a really third-rate thing. I mean, I wasn't aware of it, which will give you an idea mm -hmm. of how pervasive it was. Anyway, I looked into it and ultimately bought it and changed the name to Minneapolis-St. Paul. And it, uh, because of incredibly talented people there or acquired, it became very, very successful. What was your vision for Minneapolis-St. Paul? My vision was to do something that would provide my children with food <laughs> and me. You like sandwiches. You were eating I sandwiches do. then. I do. <laughs> okay. But I mean, for the actual, Matt, you had, you had thoughts uh, okay. and vision it, about it publishing. So incredibly simple. And it was an idea basically just stolen from New York Magazine and Washingtonian. And Chicago, those were the three that ex maybe San Francisco that existed at that time. And their, their objective was to be a service magazine that would enable residents or visitors, but primarily residents, to enjoy and lead a more fulfilling life in their own city by exposing them to facilities and resources and people that could enrich their lives. And that's exactly what the magazines do. Mm -hmm. One of the, the interesting and kind of tricky aspects of a city magazine is that balance between, you know, you don't want to just be, you can't champion everything or people don't necessarily believe that you actually have, you know, valid uh, opinions or point of view. You don't want to, you're not the Chamber of Commerce, but you are also kind of celebratory. How, what is your point of view on how you, how you find that balance? It was really tough. And especially at the beginning when we decided restaurant reviews would be an, a major ingredient because the restaurant industry was just beginning to flourish here. Previously, there, there were no ethnic restaurants. There, were no diverse, there was no diversity in restaurants. It was all meat and potatoes. And that concept uh, has now exploded, and it's a great restaurant city. But we decided we had to be honest in our reviews, and we couldn't say everything is really great. And it turned out that was not a good decision when it came to advertising support mm -hmm. from restaurants because the restaurant would say, well, I'll advertise if I can get a good review. Or you gave us a mediocre review, I'm going to cancel my advertising. And that was a really, really huge decision that we wrestled with briefly and decided it didn't matter about the advertising. We had to be honest in order to establish credibility with readers. Right. And that's what we did. And that's still the and philosophy. And we still do that. And yeah. It, it works. Yeah. Um, so then some years later, you start another publication. You start Twin Cities Business. Yeah. And uh, then 
you know, unfortunately turned that over to, to me to edit. Yes. Well, we all do things in life in which we later want to reevaluate. <laughs> right. Maybe right after this interview. Um, but what was the thinking behind Twin Cities business? We, for several years, talked about what we need to do is start a business publication that is really forthright and looks at the pros and cons of everything that's going on, all the while acknowledging that business is the lifeblood of the community and the state. We're not anti-business. On the contrary, we're pro-business. But we're, we, we need to talk about shortcomings and, and needs that are not being addressed. So we put together a little prototype called Business Tuesday that we envisioned would come out every Tuesday. And it was like a newsletter. And somehow we got distracted. And about a year later, we threw that away and put together another prototype. Uh, and I forget the name of it, but it was another business title. And we never did anything about that. And finally, we decided we really needed to move on this if we were ever going to do it. And so we went out and asked leaders of the business community and journalists, including people at the newspapers, what they thought about a concept of a pro-business but fair and balanced God, I hate using that expression, mm -hmm. uh, business publication. And almost to a person, they said, it's a really dumb idea <laughs> and it will not succeed because there is no need for it. We already have corporate report in the community which does profiles and in-depth stories about businesses. And we have the two daily papers so like idiots, we decided, well, we're going to do it anyway because we think it's right. We're smarter than all these people, mm -hmm. which we weren't. But it turns out by accident we were. And it was really well received. In all fairness, I should add, it was really well executed. Mm -hmm. It was really terrific. And it really caught on and grew tremendously and is still well-received and a, a factor in the community. Corporate Report went out of business after a couple of years. And our, our goal was not to put them out of business, but that did happen. And... Uh, that left us alone for a you, long time. You are a person who has definite ideas about what you think makes a good story and a good package and what a what a publication should look like. And yet, you were running the company. You couldn't. You you weren't the the day to day editor of Twin Cities Business or Minneapolis St. Paul. How do you? I mean, that's a, that's a tricky thing. We've talked to a lot of people on the show who you know start something and then it's hard to make that transition to leading and stepping away and letting other people. People do it. How do you do that? Well, it only happened to me once. My plan at the very outset 
1977 was to acquire this MPLS magazine and be the editor because I was a journalism major, remember? Mm -hmm. And that was my love. And I could type really fast. You still do. I still do. On a typewriter, on we a should add. On a manual typewriter. <laughs> Although I confess I do have an electric typewriter at home that I use. <laughs> um, and I was going to be the editor. And I had all kinds of ideas of, for a service publication. And then to my great regret and sorrow, I had lunch with Brian Anderson, who was, had been the editor for a half a year or so. And at the end of the lunch, I came to the conclusion he would be a better editor than I. Really? And I remember going home. I had had lunch with Brian and Gary Johnson, who was the sales manager. Who is now the president. Who is now the president, Mm -hmm. who was 28 years old at the time. I was 48. Mm -hmm. And he had just moved here to take that job a couple months earlier. And my plan was to get rid of him because... (laughs) What could a 28-year-old, I mean, my whole life is dependent now on the success of this magazine, and I wasn't about to entrust it to a Mm 28-year-old person. So I was going to hire somebody with more experience in this market. So I I decided I'm going to tell them both at the same time that I'm going to make a change. And we went to lunch at Charlie's Cafe, my favorite all-time restaurant, now gone. And when I came home that evening, Rusty said, how did it go? And I said, I don't know how I can answer that, but I've decided both Brian and Gary need to stay because they are really good. Hmm. I'm really impressed with both of these people. And even though my plan was to be the editor, I think Brian can do it better than I can. Wow, that's a tough decision it to was make. Horrible. It yeah. was horrible. And, and so they let you write a column? Well, we negotiated that. <laughs> You still write columns. You still it, come to work every day. Why? Had, why do you? Why do you? We had still a deal. Work? I yeah. had a deal with Brian. Uh huh. I love Brian. But so we made a deal, and I said to him, you know, I wanted to be the editor, but you are going to be the editor. But here's the deal: I will feel free to come into your office. And with a list of ideas, story ideas, or comments about things already accomplished. And you will listen to the ideas. And you can do them or modify them or reject them. 
and I will never bring up the same idea again. Hmm. I will not harass you and say, what about the idea about the ice cream stores? Mm -hmm. He said, that's a deal. And for the next 20 years, that's what we did. And I was a fountain of brilliant editorial <laughs> ideas. And once a month or every other month, I would go into his office and we would sit down and he would take a yellow pad, legal pad, and a pencil, and he would sit there. And I would read off from my little notes the, these brilliant ideas. And he would sit there and just sort of stare at me. He never dozed off. He never took phone calls. He just sat there. And then maybe every third or fourth idea, he would pick up the yellow pencil and do that. That being making a tiny notation, like mm -hmm. maybe two words on this legal pad, and then put the pencil down. And I would go on, and then I would say goodbye, and eventually, once in a great while, I would see one of the ideas materialize as a story that very seldom happened. Uh, what was that frustrating? No, you're the you own the company. No. You could make all the decisions. No, I loved it. I loved it because I could come up with all these ideas, and it could never be proved whether they were really good or not good uh -huh. because they never saw the light of day. Right. You Hardly could, ever. Yeah, you could just blame it and on I Brian. And I trusted Brian's judgment. Mm -hmm. Brian, we should say, has since passed away, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, as I mentioned, still you write a column in Minneapolis-St. Yeah. Paul magazine. You're very big on Twitter. You tweet under the Cone yeah. Report. Do yeah. you still type out your tweets yes. on your typewriter? Yes. And hand them over to an intern yes. who types them into the worldwide... Uh, I don't worldwide... know what she or he does with them. <laughs> Well, I have no idea. Somehow they end up on Twitter. Um, I'll read you just a couple recent of my recent favorites. Um, Katie, my Pilates torturer, is on vacation this week. So great for me. Oh, right. <laughs> that was a big one. Right. And yeah. she's going on vacation next week also. Do you really do Pilates? I do. Okay. <laughs> this is a whole... I mean, you have to understand, I have never in my entire life done any exercise or sports or athletic endeavors ever until two years ago. And I now do Pilates and core and glute and strength and something else, exercises. <laughs> so the good weeks are when she goes on vacation. Yeah. Well, you look great, though. Um, here's another recent tweet from you that really riled up the whole Internet. With Hennepin Avenue about to undergo a four-year renovation, I pray whoever designed the new Nicollet Mall isn't in charge. Oh, yeah. You don't shy away from a little uh, controversy. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's nothing. It's just cold and nothing. Yeah, yeah. And my daughter lives right next to the High Line in New York, and... It's beautiful and full of greenery and 
creative benches for relaxation and art pieces and who knows what. And Necklet Mall looks like a slab of concrete and stainless steel. It's just so cold. Yeah. And there are some trees, but shame. there should be a thousand trees. You're right. Well, I think Twitter is a good, uh, good medium for you. You can put out all those ideas, and and you don't have to wait for an editor to yeah. to run a. And plus, they do no harm because no one reads it. <laughs> no, they do. They actually do. All these tweets I mentioned, lots of likes, lots of likes on the internet. Is that what LOL means? No, LOL means laugh out loud. You can like I something never... and give it a little heart. LOL is really? when they think you're funny. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> So, Bert, I want to understand what drives you to continue. You you love magazines. You love publishing. You could, you know, you could be kicking back on a on a beach. You could be, you know, hanging out at home, watching television, doing whatever you want to do, hanging out on Nicollet Mall. Why do you go to work every day? You are. Can we say how old you are? Well, I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, I don't go to work every day. I go to the office every day. Ah. I don't work when I get there because I don't have any work. I don't get any assignments or anything. I keep waiting. <laughs> for, but nothing ever happens. Just in case. the day. Just in case I want to be there. <laughs> right. Um, the reason is, I, I could, I guess, three reasons. One, I love... Uh, the change of pace, being able to go to the office and as a change of pace from reading or watching TV or doing something, volunteering. I do a lot of volunteering Mm -hmm. work. Second, um, I have great curiosity about life. I read tons of things. I really want to know what's going on mm-hmm. in the business community. I want to know what's going on in at the University of St. Thomas. I want to know what's going on with uh, diversity problems in South Minneapolis. I, I, I'm just interested, curious about all this stuff. I devour four newspapers every day. Uh, I mean, not literally devour them. I, I recycle them afterwards. <laughs> uh, I'm just curious about things. And I love exchanging ideas with people. And our office is filled with really smart, talented, wonderful people. And sometimes they stop at my door or say hi, but sometimes come in and we chat about something. And I find that very energizing and rewarding. Mm-hmm. And then the last reason, so that would be four, is that gives me a base to have lunch with people. I have lunch virtually every weekday with people from my life, from volunteer organizations, from interest groups that I follow from business relationships, from social relationships. And that keeps me alive and sort of informed about 
basically everything going on in our community, which I love, mm -hmm. and a little bit in the world. Right. Had lunch with Fritz Mondale not too long ago, and it was so fun to do that. And he's even older than I am. But <laughs> there are hardly any people around. Uh, you know, it's just very energizing. Yeah. So I hope I can keep doing that. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a good way to be uh, to stay interested and to stay engaged. How do you feel about the future of the publishing industry, about journalism, about magazines and newspapers? Well, I have mixed emotions. It's changing. The world of journalism is changing dramatically. It has changed dramatically, but in fifteen sixty seven or whenever. Gutenberg did his triumphant demonstration of movable type and revolutionized the world of communications. Uh, it has been changing ever since. It changed sort of gradually with the innovation of high-speed presses and then r radio and then television, etc. But um, it's, it is so different than what it ever was from whatever it was before. And that's going to continue with all the new media. Do I find it comforting? No, I do not. Because I think everything is moving at light speed now, which basically precludes people from studying, analyzing, absorbing information that they need to make their own minds up and to make decisions. And it's all pouring out so fast that I don't think people are able to digest it the way they once were. Having said that, it is the way it is. So don't fight City Hall. <laughs> Accept it and see what you can do. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't surprise me if, in fact, there already are new publications. There's one called The Week, which is a digest of 50 other magazines, pulling out one story and then condensing it from 50 different publications. That's a really good service. There's another publication similar to that. Um that's good, and that's available online. I, I don't see it that way, but I. But it's there. It's there. Yeah. And well, I think even like what we're doing right now shows, I mean, things do circle around, right? I mean, we talk about the short attention span that people have today and it can be difficult. It can, you know, to get them to subscribe or to sit down and read a whole magazine. And yet they'll listen to, a, you know two-hour podcast with you. Well, they won't listen to this one, I can guarantee. <laughs> no, but I, but I think it speaks, the, the popularity of po you know a podcast, which is an opportunity to go a little deeper and tell a whole story, and the fact that people will stay engaged, it speaks to the fact that we're kind of craving longer-form stories and, and a little more in-depth point of view. I don't know what we're craving. I think we're basically craving help in coming to decisions uh, that affect our lives and the lives of our society and our families. And whether that help is in the form of 
somebody condensing 20 other opinions and providing them or somebody sitting down with me once a day or a week saying, here's what you need to know. I think the New York Times has a little teeny column called What You Need to Know This Day. And it is basically the headlines from 10 different articles. How many people base everything they know on that little teeny device? Mm -hmm. Some people do. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's evolving. Yeah. Will it ever disappear? No, it can't disappear because we all have to have some input to provide the basis for our own decision-making on in right. life. Right. So it will continue to exist in different forms and different formats. When I took journalism, we learned how to set type one letter at a time in a thing called the California job case, which had eight million little pieces of type in little boxes, and you pulled them out and put them in a holder upside down and backwards, because then when it printed, it printed it right side up. And if you, God forbid, ever dropped the California job case, eight million pieces of type would be on the floor. Mm -hmm. And you would be out of a job, by the way. So that's come a long way from that. A long way, yeah. Uh, our publications, uh, Twin Cities Business, Minneapolis-St. Paul, are produced in ways that I never could imagine in, t in terms of technology. I was with a friend this week who gave me a book that he just wrote and published. It is a gorgeous book. And I said, this is incredible. Do you think it will sell well? And he said, it doesn't matter. That's only There were only two copies of it. That's one of them. It cost $82 to, to manufacture. He ma made a book. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. DIY. You can do whatever you want. There it is. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about is leadership. You mentor so many people. You've been on so many boards. You've run companies. What is your best advice to, to all of our listeners, many of whom are aspiring to own their own business or run their own thing? What's the way to be successful in business? Well, uh, I don't mean to correct you, but when you say <clears throat> all our many listeners, I need to step in here. But that aside, uh, it, it, it's so simple as to be almost absurd, and that is just be gracious as you can and respectful and appreciative of everyone. Everyone is different. Some people have certain talents that others don't have, but they're missing something in exchange. There are no perfect people. They all have good and are able to contribute and are worthy of respect. And I really think if you're polite and nice and civil and respectful and open-minded to other people's thoughts and ideas, um, that it will lead to success for you and will be heartwarming for the people to whom you're uh, 
bestowing that respect. Right. Great advice. So simple, but so important. Bert, I can't tell you what an honor it is to get to run ideas by you and once in a while to have you say something is pretty good and get to talk about journalism and magazines with you on a regular basis. I do have a question of you. What's that? Is there an honorarium for this uh, (laughs) of some sort? I got a muffin for you. A muffin? (laughs) Yeah, a muffin. It's blueberry. Is it from today or was it from a previous podcast? (laughs) No, No, you'll get the fresh one. Wow. We'll save the leftovers for the podcast. Allison, thank you. Thank you, Bert. Pleasure to talk to you. It takes teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Benita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. Thank you.